Welcome to the Leadership in Yoga podcast hosted by me, Shauna Kruger. And on this podcast, I'll be bringing you interviews with exceptional leaders in the yoga world alongside trainings and tips so you can experience true breakthroughs and help others do the same. Leadership in Yoga, welcome back to another episode. And today I have Greta Hill here with me. And Greta has been studying yoga, meditation, and the healing arts for more than 25 years. And she's been teaching internationally since 1999. She facilitates yoga teacher trainings, retreats, and online yoga lifestyle courses, and she has also served as a consultant for a variety of wellness magazines, including the Yoga Journal. And I would also add, after having taken your class personally, Greta, your confidence and your knowledge, it's remarkable. It really comes through, and after hearing your name quite a bit in the, in the Seattle yoga community, I actually ended up going over and, and finding you, hunting you down and taking a class with you at a studio that I'm not always at. And I just have to say that it it makes sense, you know, and other folks have actually mentioned you here on the podcast. And so I am very stoked to have you here today to talk about teaching yoga. So if you want to go ahead and say hello to everyone. Yes, thank you so much. Hello. And thank you, Shauna. That that means a lot to me. And I'm super honored to be here with you. Beautiful. So just to kind of give a little bit of context for you and then also other folks who may not have listened to the podcast before, I think that there's so much value that comes from when you see someone that's doing something that's really inspiring to you and you just, you like where they're at and the way that they're being, uh, being able to have a, whether it's a coffee chat or a tea chat, or just be able to sit down and actually ask the questions and curiosities that you have is such a powerful thing. And then at the same time, we obviously don't have all of the time in the world to be having those kind of conversations. And so if you're tuning into the podcast today, it's my hope that you get out of this conversation that I'm about to have with Greta the same amount of value and information as if you were sitting down to have a tea or coffee chat with her yourself. So that's kind of the context of the the leadership and yoga podcast it's a really kind of a passion project of mine to distill what it is that we can learn from not only your teaching style but your experience and kind of what you've learned along the way so that is what you're going to hear if you're tuning in today is is everything about teaching yoga it won't be as much about finding yoga and um, starting yoga and all of that that might inform the conversation a little bit but you'll definitely hear quite a bit about the actual teaching side of of things. And so with that said, I actually kind of like to break up the interview structure every now and then instead of launching into the the questions you're expecting. I was just wondering if you could share with everybody a fun fact about yourself. Anything that comes to mind just could be something random, could be something (laughs) surprising, anything you want to share. Okay. Um sure. Well How about this? I was on a trip in Mysore, India, uh, doing yoga, and I met my husband on that trip at about 4 a.m. in a rickshaw on an empty street in India at 4 a.m. in a rickshaw. And uh, it's like we have a very good uh, meet cute, you know. And um, after that, I ended up, he's Brazilian, and so I ended up moving to Brazil and living there for eight years. And so that's one fun fact. That's an incredible fun fact. Okay, so are you from Seattle area originally? I actually don't even know. Yeah, not really. It's a complicated question, but I've lived here off and on. I'm originally from California. Okay, got you. That's so fun. So you met your husband when you were abroad. Was it a yoga trip or you just ended up doing yoga once you were there? 
Um, both. I was there to practice, but also to study, but also I was doing volunteer work. Beautiful. Yeah. That's so fun. I actually also met my husband when I was not in India. <laughs> I was in Ecuador, but we met when I was abroad and he's Traveling. from Venezuela. So oh, wonderful. Yeah. That's <laughs> Neighbor fun. countries. That's fun. Yeah. Very cool. I love that fun fact. So it feels to me and just kind of, you know, as I mentioned, hearing your name around in the yoga community and also following you and seeing what you're up to and reading your bio and all that, it feels like you were so immersed in the yoga world. Did you always plan to teach or was, how did that come about? Uh, well, I started um, doing yoga when I was 18 and I started teaching yoga when I was 23 years old. So I did not always plan to be a teacher. I, um, Actually, here's another fun fact, but I used to be an actress. And so oh I was, yeah. and I remember when I was living in Los Angeles uh, years ago, I was in an acting class and the teacher said, like, we had to write out like our five-year acting goals. And I wrote in my five-year acting goal, I want to be successful enough as an actress that I have the money to open a yoga studio. <laughs> and my teacher is like, you know, I think that there are probably easier paths if you want to just open a yoga studio than trying to be an actress first. So I guess it was already always in there, but it wasn't in my awareness at that time. Sure. Do you feel like the acting informed your ability to teach? in terms of maybe even things like stage fright and just getting up in front of a room of people? I, I really do, actually. Um, I think it informed, I think, you know, as teachers, we have to build qualities like presence and how to speak well and how to hold a room. And I don't think it was a direct correlation to my acting, but I definitely think it, you know, it gave me a little bit of a a bonus. <laughs> it <Sure>. helped. <laughs> yeah. Because I've thought about it before. I've thought man, and maybe it would be good to do some sort of an improv class or something just to get more comfortable in front of rooms of people, especially, I mean, I'm two years into my teaching now, but especially those first couple of classes, it was, it was very uncomfortable as I'm sure we'll kind of get into that later as well. But I was also curious um, along the lines of once you started being a teacher did you commit fully to teaching right away or was it more of a gradual process? I committed pretty fully right away. I was still, um, I was still working other jobs. I had like a support job for a few years and I was also still pursuing acting at that time. Mm -hmm. But I remember I graduated from my first teacher training program on a Sunday and I taught my first class that following Thursday and at this time, I was running all over Los Angeles teaching something like 25 classes in a week. So I was really doing like the yoga hustle and um, full full on. I have a kind of all or nothing personality. So once I went for it, I really just, that's all I've actually done my entire adult life now, full time. Wow. So you never kind of changed your mind midway or stopped teaching for a period of time to pursue something else? No, actually, wow. I'm not. I mean, I've had breaks. Um, yeah. You know, when I moved to Brazil, it took a little time. I had to learn Portuguese before I could teach. And I've had little breaks like that that were just built into life, but not consciously taking a break to do something else. Wow, that's really cool. And that shows and that makes sense, honestly, the more that we're talking about it. <laughs> in terms of teaching, so I know that you, in, in sequencing, if you were teaching 25 classes a week and you just taught, 
and taught and taught and taught like crazy. How nowadays do you sequence your classes or plan your class? I'm sure, I'm not sure that you necessarily do it in like a sit down and decide exactly what you want to teach, but how do you decide what it is that you want to bring on any given day? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't suggest teaching 25 classes in a week (laughs) if you can avoid it. Um, So uh, what I do, it differs, to be honest with you. I I like to have, um, I like to incorporate different I want to make sure that over time, students are having a wide range of things offered to them. And so if I'm focusing this week, for example, on backbends, um, next week I'll focus on something else. And within that, I always try to, I, I know whether it's on paper or at least in my mind, I know before I walk in the room what my focus is what like an anatomical focus is in terms of what I call key actions. Mm-hmm. I know what kind of... Um, overarching philosophical or spiritual theme will be tied in. And I know if we're working towards an apex pose. And so I have kind of like an outline, like a skeleton in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I just have done it a lot now. So I can plug and play like different little flows and poses into it. But I do prepare that at least that much every time before I walk in the room. And have you always taught what you know and maybe you wouldn't call your principal style vinyasa flow i think i i took a vinyasa class with you so i'm not sure if that is is that your principal style so i teach uh what's called rasa yoga and rasa can depending on the teacher it can be interpreted as more like hatha alignment based more vinyasa it's encompasses a lot okay have you always taught that or have you taught other styles in the past as well I have taught other styles. I um, I started out as an Anusara yoga teacher. I was part of that community for about 13 years, and then uh, I'm no longer part of that community, but definitely a lot of that information, especially the biomechanics, um, mm-hmm. really inform a lot of what I'm doing. And so you feel like you're what you would call maybe your style or your teaching philosophy that you have now, when do you feel like that that developed? I know that's kind of a hard question because of course it changes a lot along the way, but is there kind of a moment that you feel like you hit your groove and you felt like you finally found, okay, this is, this is it. Like this is the thing that I can bring really well for people and I also enjoy doing it. That is a great question. Um, the truth is that I don't know if there's like a particular moment that stands out in time. My teaching style, it changes a little bit, but the principles of it, like what's at the heart of it, have actually been there from the very beginning. You know, the philosophy that I align with and um, the way that I approach alignment, I mean, of course, that's evolved as alignment evolves over time, but I don't have a specific moment in time. What I can say is that I do think it takes a little bit of time. And I'm also open to continually evolve. I never want to think like, oh, this is it. This is what I do and put like a label on it because that kind of limits what's possible. Absolutely. What would you consider to be your teaching philosophy now, if you had to describe it? In terms of teaching uh, rather than yoga, um, I would say my teaching philosophy is to serve with love to serve the students, to get out of the way. It's not about me, <laughs> never has been. And to like, to get out, like, you know, we, we think it is sometimes, but to get out of my own way 
to show up and to fully serve who's in the room, who's in front of me, what's happening to take into account what's happening um, socially, politically, the weather, like the environment, all the things that people are facing in life and to show up in a way that meets the moment and to just serve, to totally serve with love. I love that. What, you know, meet the moment and, and bring in all of the different considerations. And at the same time, I think what you said about getting out of our own way is super key and realizing that it's not about us. I feel like that's a constant reminder and a key theme because it's so easy to kind of switch into a sort of, I, I would call it sort of a survival mode. At least I notice it in myself when I'm feeling uncomfortable in a particular situation. Maybe I'm teaching a class I don't usually teach or whatever it is. And then I immediately flip into this sort of tendency towards self-evaluation. And then at the end of the day, if I'm doing that, then I'm not able to show up fully. And, and while I know that, it's sometimes hard in the moment to get out of that. Do you have any tips or, or advice on that um, beyond practice, of course? Yeah. I mean, I will just say that I do the same thing. You know, even after all these years, I think it's a part of our human nature. We want people to perceive us as doing a good job and we want people to like us. And all of that is just very much a part of being a human. And so I embrace it. And when I notice myself falling into that, I'm like, focus, just Greta, take a breath and focus on your students who's in front of you. As soon as we place our full attention on somebody it's impossible to be thinking about ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's just like when we're in a conversation with somebody and we're really listening to them, we're not thinking about what we just said or what we're going to say next. And so it's a a lot of it is about presence and really just placing the awareness on others. Remembering the big, I like to also remember like my big, remember that why I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. It's not for validation. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> it's not for validation. You know, it's like to really like show up and be of service. And so I just keep bringing it back to that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's say we're, or I'll use myself as an example. I'm in a moment where I'm feeling a little bit anxious in a new setting and I'm feeling like I'm super self-critical and what I really want is to serve people well, but I'm just I'm kind of not seeing people because there's this cloud of anxiety, right? Is it better to focus in on one or two people or you try to see everybody just kind of in terms of scanning the crowd? I'm not sure if that question makes sense. Kind of getting into the specifics of it. Yeah, I think think find a friendly face. You Mm -hmm. know, focus on somebody who is making eye contact with you or who has, you know, a smile on their face or somebody that you know who's in the room. Mm-hmm. Or, and if, you know, on the off day that you just can't find somebody who's really, who feels <laughs> to be really present with you, just think like who might really need this right now. And maybe yeah. they can't look at me or they have a sad face, but it's not about me. Maybe they just really need to be here. How can I, what can I say in this moment that can actually be useful to them? And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just kind of play with it like this in my own psyche so that I can, um, but to, short answer is, yeah, I think look specifically at somebody, hopefully mm-hmm. who's looking back at you, and it makes it a lot yeah. easier. And it also keeps the teaching, uh, something that I like about teaching is like when it just feels more conversational, not yes. a teacher up on a, you know, big platform. Absolutely. Yeah. And what do you do? I know you touched on it a bit here, but you have, let's say, a sea of faces that are just kind of 
<laughs> the neutral, no expression face, because that happens. And I don't think it's ever intentional, like you said, and it might not even mean that they're not present. It's just that they're, they're not engaging in that way. And we know as when we're speaking, public speaking, it's really hard to speak to a bunch of uh, straight, plain faces. And so that's something that I think happens all the time when you're teaching yoga, at least a lot more than it would if you were actually giving a speech, because of course people are doing things with their body and they're, you know, getting water, like whatever it is, and they're not necessarily focused, like they're not making that eye contact with you. What would you do to make the class feel a little bit more conversational, at least move in that direction if it feels like people aren't making eye contact or they aren't really necessarily engaging with you in that manner. Yeah, it can be really tough. I mean, that definitely happens. And uh, in like in the beginning of a class, for example, in that in that moment where you're just starting, if it just feels like people are really not with you or making eye contact with you, I usually start with something very you know, casual, like, hi, how are you today? How are you feeling? Like, how's it going? Just make, make contact, always looking for ways to make contact. And then uh, sometimes people will still stare at you in silence. And <laughs> then, you know, I, I often like to um, revert to a little bit of humor, but you know, not when it's forced, but for me, it's yeah. just, I just like, I think humor softens everybody. It softens the edges, keep it a little bit lighthearted. I think sometimes that serious face we get with our students because people think that yoga has to be a particular kind of very serious, like solemn environment. Mm-hmm. I personally like to kind of debunk that idea a little bit. Yeah. But um, yeah, I just think make contact, eye contact, smile with people. If you continue to exude warmth, I think eventually they're going to mm. they're gonna re- reciprocate, you know. True. I agree. I love that. That's That's a really nice specific way of addressing also the use of humor. And I think that I love classes where there's a little bit of the humor thrown in. And I've also heard um, other folks say too, that it kind of breaks the ice and it breaks the pressure when students are able to hear the laugh of, (laughs) or the giggle, or even just some sort of noise from the people around them. So it doesn't feel like you said that level of seriousness where they they have to stay in the in the yoga lane, you know, in the, the yeah. silence. Um, I think that's really beautiful. I had a teacher once who said, I mean, we could probably say a lot about this, but this particular teacher said, yoga is way too important to take it so seriously. Mm. And I actually love that because sometimes if we make it overly serious, uh, it kills the joy. And for me, yoga is really about sparking joy. Absolutely. Absolutely. What is your opinion on music and classes? This is kind of a, a random tangent, but it came up when we're talking about joy, because I know some people really get a lot of joy out of flowing with the music and other people will prefer a silence or at least not distracting music. So I love both. I think that the use of music is uh very much a part of our sort of modern yoga culture. It hasn't always been that way. Mm-hmm. When I started teaching, we never taught with music. And sometimes I really miss that. In fact, last week I was at a studio and their sound system went out and I got to teach a class with no music. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> and all the students were kind of complaining about it. But um, I think the music can really serve a practice. I also think it can be a major distraction. And that depends a lot on the type of music, the way that it's used. I think 
sometimes teachers rely too much on music, like a crutch, rather than mm-hmm. learning to fully hold space. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, I have mixed feelings about it, but I like it. I don't, I like it. And I also like silence. I think it's interesting that you mentioned it as a crutch because that's something that I was really evaluating within my own teaching and talking with a few other teachers as well is, is it that we enjoy the music or is it that it fills the silence and getting okay with having there be just silence is a whole nother practice in a way. I mean, And I I totally agree. I enjoy also, I practice a lot of Ashtanga yoga. And so I love to go to the shallow, I guess it's just century ballroom, but that big open space and all you hear is just the creaky wood floor and the breath. It's, it's magical, but I also do love to have the music kind of pull me along. It's a, it's a different, I would say entirely different action sort of. I was wondering if throughout all this experience teaching, if you had any sort of major takeaway that you wish you would have known or somebody would have told you when you were, let's say, at where I'm at, so two years into teaching. Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> or a couple. It doesn't have to be one specific one. Okay. I think – I don't know that it's a takeaway so much. Is it just something I really believe? Stay close to your teachers – stay close to your practice, like nurture your practice first, because all good teaching comes from practice. And it doesn't matter how many courses or certifications or whatever, whatever, if you don't really have personal practice, and to me, personal practice is different than just showing up in somebody else's led class, but really like cultivating your own sadhana, your own deep practices. um, Without that, I think you'll get burnt out. I think your teaching won't be as rich. It won't be as inspired. I also think it's good to know this might be a takeaway. You're going to, I mean, I hate to speak for anybody, but I think that it's very natural to be burnt out. You will have burnout and that's part of it. And it's just part of the flow of life, no matter what kind of industry you're in or what profession you're in. People in the yoga industry will disappoint you sometimes, just like in any industry, because we're humans and There will be times of feeling really inspired about your work and teaching and your students and your practice. And there are going to be times where it just feels like, you know, pulling hair to get yourself on your mat or to go teach a class. And I think just to, to ride that with the knowing that that's the natural evolution of it and um, not to be dismayed when it happens because it probably will. To continue through and, and trust that you'll get to, you'll see the light at the end of the tunnel of whatever that kind of downturn or whatever that difficult moment, like you said, the feeling like <laughs> pulling hair to get on your mat. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, we need times of rest. It, you know, we need times where maybe we aren't teaching as much, but, but we always need to be filling our own cup. And that to mm-hmm. me comes by being close to your teachers, be close to the teachings, be close to your practice and um, protect that because it's easy to get really busy and think that you're practicing just because you're teaching a lot, but they're really two different, very different things. Absolutely. And I want to ask you about self-practice, but first I wanted to ask you, uh, how do you choose your teachers or how, how did you choose your teachers? I'm sure you still have them now, but especially in that developmental phase. Yeah, I, I've, I'm real. First of all, I love being a student. 
that's the other thing I would say, like always be a student first. I am very close to my teachers and I have been so blessed with extraordinary teachers. And I mean, part of it was just luck and grace. And uh, what I always wanted, what I always was looking for were teachers who could connect for me the dots between the physical and the esoteric and the spiritual and the metaphysical. And yoga was never like about a workout for me. And Mm -hmm. that's fine. Like whatever people, everybody comes to the practice for different reasons, but I wanted teachers who could bring the depths that I was craving. So that was a big thing that has inspired who I study with and continues to inspire who I study with. I am over here like snapping for when you said the depth that I was craving, because I feel I resonate so much with that, that statement. I feel very similarly. And I think a lot of us do when we come looking for yoga versus the boot camp at the the gym up the street, right? Right. (laughs) We could work out with people in that way too, if you wanted to. When it comes to your self-practice and as you mentioned, not counting self-practice in terms of I'm going to someone else's class, I'm taking a class and I'm being guided, but uh, me leading me sort of self-practice. Are you more intuitive with that practice or do you set a schedule for yourself? So I've done different things um, over time. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes just being intuitive with it is really nice. It's a really nice sort of self-care kind of practice of just listening to what you need and doing that. What I found to be truthful is that sometimes if I didn't have a plan, I would just end up using my practice time in a certain sense to plan what I'm going to teach consciously or not. And so lately I've been experimenting with being a little bit more regimented and sticking with the same practice, the same sequence for a period of time to watch Mm -hmm. how it shifts and changes, how I shift and change with it over time instead of just doing whatever I feel like. Because also, if we just do what we feel like, we'll obviously often just do the fun stuff that we're good at and our strengths become our weaknesses over time if the weaknesses aren't developed. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've been trying to be a little bit more disciplined around kind of doing the same or similar practice consistently for like a while. Is that a practice or a sequence that you developed or is it a set sequence that you just have taken a liking to? It's kind of a combo, to be truthful. It's inspired by a teacher in New York, and then I I made a lot of additions and embellishments to it. And it's not a set sequence from any like like um, Ashtanga or Bikram or anything like that. But it's just a, a practice that I like doing. And and I just will say, I also think it's important to take classes for inspiration and also for community and to support fellow yoga teachers. So I kind of like, I like to do both, but yeah. Basically live, sleep, eat, and breathe. (laughs) Kind of, yeah. When we're teaching, (laughs) practicing. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you ever just get kind of, I don't know if fed up is the right word, but, and burnout isn't really the right word either, but do you ever just take a break from it all and just stop? thinking about yoga or is it is yoga always there for you well and let's talk like physical yoga first because I think the spiritual is probably a different 
Yeah, right. Okay, great. That's a good distinction. Uh, yeah, definitely take breaks. Um, sometimes not really big breaks because after a little break, I'm usually kind of craving to come back. Um, you know, when I travel, I love to travel and I like to travel and not be like my, in my yoga teacher brain. So (laughs) I will travel and sometimes like really not practice for a week or two and do other things, go on big walks. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I definitely take breaks. That's the short answer, but not too big of a break. (laughs) (laughs) What do you find motivates you to keep coming back to your physical practice? What's the drawback even after a break? I honestly, my body craves it now. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's been decades of yoga and I just don't feel at ease in my body if I go too long without it. You know, it grounds me and I have a lot of energy. And so it actually kind of like brings me back to earth a little bit sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> it's very grounding for me. And my body just craves it. Like I do other kinds of movement, but none of it for me is as like satiating as yoga. For sure. What do you feel like motivates students to keep coming back? And let's talk maybe beginners or folks who are newer to their practice. I think a couple of things. Uh, one is, one is uh, progress. I think if teachers are able to help their students feel and see and experience progress, whether that means in a particular pose or with particular, you know, something that they're trying to open or strengthen in their body, that, that's one way. Sometimes it's progress, just like feeling a little more um, at ease, less anxious, a little happier. But I think people need to feel progress or else they're just going to jump to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And Uh, So that's one thing. I also think connection, feeling connected to uh, the teacher, to the community, just feeling like they're in a space where they're part of something because everybody Mm -hmm. wants to belong. We all have a need to belong. And so I think if we can create a sense of belonging in our classes, it will inspire people to keep coming. How do you feel like is a good sort of effective way and also a sustainable way to build that feeling of connection, because I know when you get to the point that you're at and you're teaching in a lot of different studios and you're here and there and you have a lot of students, I don't know if it's possible then at that point to like remember people's names or what they were doing last weekend. And and that's something that I find myself doing right now and, and relying on is, okay, learning names and asking people questions about their lives. But how do you build connection in your classes? Because I, I, I haven't really hung around you enough to, to know, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, of course, I think at some point you might not know every single person's name, but mm-hmm. when I teach a class, uh, some of the classes I teach are really small, so it's easier. Some of them are really big. And when they're big, even if they're big, I try to acknowledge each person somehow, whether it's eye contact, a smile, uh, uh, an adjustment, Um, a verbal cue, you know, but just to like actually move around the room and to acknowledge each person so that they feel Mm -hmm. like, okay, she knows I was here. (laughs) You know, I might not remember every name, but I know that you're here. And I think that's important. Um, I think that's really important. Make people feel seen. Absolutely. I love that. And in the quest to help people feel progress and to help people feel seen, 
how can we effectively take feedback from students? Because this is an interesting one because we know people have preferences and even other teachers have preferences. So how do you take feedback? Do you take it from only certain people? And if so, who? (laughs) That's a, that's a great question. I, yeah, I think it's important to be open to feedback. Um, Mm -hmm. And I also think you got to be real discerning and decipher what you're listening to. Uh, I've fallen in the trap of like reading reviews of myself on class pass (laughs) or something. And it's like, they gave me one star because they didn't like my playlist or something like that, you know? So I think like, okay, I'm just going to like let that one go. It hurt. I'm going to let it go. But uh, I think it's important to, to have trusted uh, mentors. You know, this is why when I said like stay close to your teachers, I mean like in relationship to have mm-hmm. mentors and teachers, no matter where you're at in your career, uh, your yeah. teaching life. And so I have uh, my primary teacher, Siana Sherman, who is a big mentor and for for many years of mine, I get feedback from her that I definitely take to heart. I get Mm -hmm. feedback. um, I think sometimes you can get feedback from trusted students and, you know, I just think you have to be discerning Mm -hmm. because people are also very quick to just say whatever. And remember that whatever they're saying, is not actually personal. They might like or dislike something that's personal. That's fine. But, but when you talk about, the quality of teaching or what's being transmitted, that's something else. Absolutely. I like to remind people too, that their preferences, um, you know, (laughs) don't mistake your preferences for your, for what's possible, you know? Mm, That's a good one. We get too stuck on just what we like. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And maybe it's not, okay, that wasn't the focus. The focus of that class wasn't, what I like, but it was in some way or form what I needed. (laughs) I feel that every time we work on shoulders, I'm like, oh, my shoulders are so tight. That's not what I like. But even that too, and it goes beyond that. That's like a superficial example of that. But even in certain teachers, right, and their their style of facilitation and their energy that they bring, I find myself sometimes almost like, oh, this is not at all what I expected. But within this, there's something here for me, regardless, and and that's a cool uh, a cool experience as well. You- yeah, that's a nice reflection of you as a student, like and that kind of openness. And I think that that's something wonderful um, that we can always learn something. And I also think it's okay that not everybody's going to like you, and not everybody, not everybody's going to like me. I don't have to be everybody's teacher. The people who resonate will come back, and we have to just mm-hmm. trust that it's okay that people don't like your teaching or your class or whatever, but is the feedback like, Oh, you hurt my feelings because you said this thing that was inappropriate or insensitive, or you adjusted me in a way that hurt my body. Now that's the kind of feedback. It's like red flag, like, listen, like really Mm -hmm. listen to that. But it's like, Oh, I don't like that kind of sequence or I don't like that playlist. Like, okay, well there's a thousand other teachers, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So. Do you think that teaching yoga is an art form? Would you consider it like that? Hundred percent. Yes, I think it's an. I think it's an art and it's a science. I mean, I think it's like tech. All good artists have really good technique. So I think you need to have a lot of technique and understanding. Mm-hmm. But I think it's definitely um, a creative expression and an art form. How do you consider? I mean, obviously, science in terms of 
anatomy, right? But how do you consider it also science? I would be curious to hear that explanation. I think in this um, in this context, I am referring to like alignment, um, progressive sequencing, uh, things that make sense, like functional anatomy. You don't have to be a wizard at all of it, but to have a good you know base understanding. Because you need technique. It's not just, I mean, I also think you can go too far the other direction where people are so just like on these elaborate, very inspired, creative, you know, expressions of a sequence that are not really beneficial to the majority of bodies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that was actually going to be one of my next questions is because I think a lot of times when we talk about an art, we want it to, people will say like, I've heard this said before that the audience comes last, like create what feels authentic to you. But in yoga, I also consider it an art form, but I got really kind of hung up there on that, that, that fact, because I'm, I'm thinking, how do we serve people the best and really make it about them, but at the same time, allow it to be that creative art form? Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I hadn't heard that before about think of the audience last I don't think with the art of yoga teaching, I would totally apply that personally. I think you really think of the audience first, actually. But I think there are a lot of ways to be creative as a teacher and to have it be your art form. It's not just about the way you're putting stringing poses together in a sequence. What are the what's the thematic content that you're offering? Can you link the thematic content to the actual physical poses so that so that it connects it's not just two random things you're throwing into the same class those are those are different kinds of ways of building the artistry of your teaching so now when you go to teach do you always put that much thought into every class i guess i'm asking if that's your routine is to kind of really link and go that deep into it or if that's something that is is sometimes there and sometimes not as much as you'd like it to be yeah it it i would say it's my hope and it's my goal and of course it doesn't always like sync up exactly some days you know some classes are better than others we all have like our on days and like oh I could that like could be improved and so I just like to I like to try you know also because again like back to the artistry it makes it fun for me mm-hmm. it makes it more enriching for me than just walking in and teaching some random thing that's fun once in a while, but to give it some thought and make it like layered and different, the the student may have no idea that this is actually going on, but I know, and that's fulfilling that there's like these different layers to it. So I definitely do. That is actually part of my planning process. I do put a lot of thought into my class. I love that. That's really cool. And I, I like the way that you describe that too. It's the student might not even be aware, maybe not the first time, maybe not the first month, but then they start to kind of pick up on it. And it's not necessarily as you're telling them feel X, Y, Z thing, but they're starting to pick up and starting to feel those different elements throughout the class. That's yeah. that's the kind of class that I really like. What kind of class do you like? What do you like in a class? I you know, I've taken a lot of classes this just this past week, like a lot of public classes, and everyone was so fun and so different. I um, I like teachers who feel relatable and, uh, and like they want to be there, like they're enjoying what they're doing. That motivates me more as a student. 
Mm-hmm. I like the class to have some kind of a centering in the beginning, not to just like jump right in without, I like to you know, just remember like the highest kind of reasons for practice. And I like teachers who pull that through. Mm-hmm. I like classes that incorporate a little bit of breath work. I like sequences that are progressive, um, that move some, not maybe not every time, but I do enjoy sequences that move towards something specific mm-hmm. where it feels not like a just random assortment of potpourri, like any kind of pose, but like, okay, this teacher, like they took me, they took me on a journey. I like that, mm-hmm. you know, going on the journey. I like yeah. that too. Yeah. That's a good and I'll description. Say something else. I really enjoy and appreciate and am so grateful when teachers turn off the music and stop talking during Shavasana. (laughs) (laughs) I really like it to just be quiet in Shavasana personally. Interesting. Yeah. I definitely, you know what, maybe I'm going to do a quiet Shavasana one of these days. I'm not, I'm not a talker during Shavasana either, but I'm usually a a tranquil music. Oh yeah. A little (laughs) bit of tranquil music is okay, but I, I think I'm referring more to the teachers who want to talk you the whole way through it. Yeah. Yeah. A guided. Yeah. I definitely think that sometimes guided Shavasanas feel a little more risky in terms of how they will land or not. And so I, I tended to, I think maybe I did that earlier on because uh, I really liked to create guided meditations. Now I just create them and put them elsewhere and you can, you can listen to them. <laughs> yeah. Later. That's great. I mean, they can be really powerful and really beautiful. Yes. I think in general, I mean, I'm kind of just making, I'm kind of just teasing, but I think it's nice when teachers have a good balance of speaking and just mm-hmm. allowing space that they're not talking. And sometimes yeah. I think Shabbasanas can get overdone with the talking. <laughs> Absolutely, because it's that thing of silence again, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, this has been really, really wonderful, and I really appreciate all of your different insight. I want to just ask one more question before we get to our follow-up question, which is, and this will be about leadership in general, so it could be about teachers, but it doesn't have to be about yoga teachers, unless that's, of course, the example that comes to your mind, as it might, because I know that you've spent your your life's work in, in this area. So I was wondering what you think makes an exceptional leader. I think uh, a leader who is fully in touch with their own humanity and um, ability to err that there's no pretense of being perfect, evolved, enlightened. I think leaders who live in total integrity where uh, they might be, they might get it wrong, but they're willing to admit that and to do better. Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, leaders who, who that's the biggest thing, integrity. I just think, to really be in integrity. And that involves a lot of, um, of work, of ongoing, continual, I think, personal work and development. Like, it's like a lifelong process. And I think it's totally necessary to be in any kind of position of leadership. Do you have any examples of people who really embody that, that are either in your life currently or, or folks that you've crossed paths with? 
I probably can think of a lot of examples, but uh, one, I'm, I'm filtering in my mind, <laughs> who will I speak about? You know, um, one of my teachers, uh, one of my teachers is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and she's a, a big leader in the yoga community. She teaches a lot about anti-racism and the intersection of yoga and social justice. And uh, I've been in a lot of spaces with her where she's just said, I don't know the answer, but I'll find out or, you know, like that, like that kind of humility and it's not uh, self-deprecating at all. It's just honest and mm-hmm. it's real and it's authentic. And it's, it, that to me is integrity. She's, she's a great example. If you don't know her, please go support her and read all of her books. <laughs> I will. I'll write down her name and I will definitely look. I'll link her as well in the, in the show notes, maybe if anyone wants to, to read a little bit more about what she's up to. I briefly saw a mention of her, I think, on your website or on your Instagram recently. But yeah, it's a wonderful example. Thank you. So here's the, the final question. It's the billboard question. And so okay. essentially the idea is that if you have a billboard that's going to be seen by everybody in the world, what would you put on the billboard? And so it can be a message, mantra, something you live by doesn't even have to be words. If you don't want it to be words, it can be anything that you want it to be. On a billboard, the whole world's going to see it? Whole world's going to see the billboard. Okay, We're assuming okay. it would be translated. <laughs> okay. Um, how about know your worth? Like I really just want everybody to know like how worthy and valuable um, they are. And to just not be so limited by all the small self, you know, small self, like self-deprecating, the self-hatred, the self-loathing, like just trust yourself and know you are worthy. How about that? Trust yourself and know you are worthy. <laughs> Beautiful. I feel <laughs> refreshed. I don't know, motivated after hearing you say that. So that's a wonderful one. Well, thank you so much again for having this conversation so much value in here and I really appreciate your time. I look forward to practicing with you more and where can people find you? Uh, where can they practice with you? You can plug any upcoming events, uh, teacher trainings, classes, all of that good stuff. Okay. Uh, thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been really fun. And um, I, uh, people can find me, well, my website is my name, GretaHill.com. And through there, you can find my local classes in Seattle. And I have, if you are local in Seattle, I have four spaces left for my fall teacher training, which starts in November. And I also have a, um, an online membership, an online Sangha circle. And we meet for live classes every week and workshops and moon circles. And there's also an on-demand library of practices in there. So those are all things you can learn about through my website. Fun. Yeah. Yes. And I've heard really, really good things about teacher trainings with you. So if you're listening, you're on the edge, inspired to become a teacher. Yeah, I would, I would definitely say to check out Greta's Greta's training, especially if you're in the Seattle area. So thank you. Well, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. And if you are listening, thanks for making it all the way to the end of the episode. And we'll see you in the next one. Ciao, ciao. Ciao.